if I'm competing against big entrenched incumbents, I usually don't care because I know I can outmaneuver them. But there are some exceptions to that. If there's a network effect, like a two-sided marketplace or where everyone being there means everyone stays there, like think about eBay and Craigslist. These sites that so many people have tried to copy, including Amazon, tried to copy eBay. They had their own auctions. I mean, there's been all these things that have tried to, to unseat eBay and Craigslist. And they couldn't because even though the sites didn't change, it didn't improve, they have tremendous network effects. And so if, if the legacy trade organizations and associations you're talking about have network effects as a bootstrapper, I personally would be very wary of trying to unseat those. Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. And if you want to see one of the worst hair days I've had in years, go to twitter.com slash startups pod and check out the clip from today's episode. In today's episode, I am going to be answering a handful of listener questions ranging from having a free version with an honor system to pay for it, how to gain traction against entrenched competition, doing sales as an introverted founder, and how to proceed if you don't have time for the stair-step method of entrepreneurship. Before we dive in to today's questions, if you haven't checked out my YouTube channel, it's at microconf.com slash YouTube. I'm putting out 52 YouTube videos a year with topics ranging from new SaaS ideas that you should build, looking at acquisition funnels, high touch, low touch, talking about sales, talking about the SaaS cheat codes, pulling some things out of my book and expanding on them. It's free and it's easy to subscribe. microconf.com slash YouTube if you're interested. And with that, Let's dive in to our first listener question, which is a voicemail because voicemails go to the top of the stack. Hi, Rob, and thanks for the show and books. I recently launched my first product, a vulnerability scanner available at opalopc.com. It is a desktop application. It is free for non-commercial use and for commercial use, only for small organizations. The rest need to buy license to use it. I currently trust users to buy licenses if they are not eligible for free use. The program does not do any license checking itself. My reasoning behind this is that uh, those interested can freely test uh, the product and the target market consists of very large organizations and I doubt they will take the risk of breaching the end-user license agreement. What do you think of this? Should I remove the free plan? How would you continue? Keep up the good work. Thanks. So I'll be honest, I struggle with this because this feels, it feels like just one step above a tip jar, you know, of saying, hey, if you like us, support us. I know that you will have a license such that big companies won't want to break that license, But I'll be honest, there are a bunch of people, individual contributors at big companies that will download it and just never say anything. You know, you're going to, you're going to lose out on revenue. And I've never loved the model where I get a small bit of money from a very small percentage of my audience. You know, I feel like if people get value out of my software, I want them to pay for it. Now, the exception, of course, is freemium, having a free plan. And in that case, we look at our four, I don't know, rules or rules of thumb around freemium, which of course were swiped as most of my good ideas are from Ruben Gomez of Signwell. And one of them is, is there a tiny bit of virality such that another user using it can potentially refer, you know, a, a separate user? Is it low support? 
Is it low onboarding? And is there almost no cost to you for them to use the software? And my guess is the last three are accurate, probably no virality for you. So I guess the question is, is does it need to truly be free forever? Or could it be a 14-day, a 30-day, a 60-day free trial that then stops working at a certain point? That's probably the default way I think about it. Or having your version so limited to where if it's a vulnerability scanner, maybe there's 500 types of vulnerabilities and it only scans for 50 or 100. And so to actually get value out of it, because if I'm an individual user, a consumer, and I want the full value, shouldn't I upgrade, you know, and enter a license key such that it unlocks those? Like, it, I don't know. It feels to me like having a true free consumer version. I know that's how like WinZip made their money back in the days. Oh man, that's a throwback. Remember WinZip? And there was that old Winamp player thing from Microsoft, I believe. I mean, it, it you know, but it's Microsoft, right? They have infinity money and can kind of do whatever free they want. If I was bootstrapping this and actually trying to make money on it, freemium pushes out your revenue, right? It pushes out that revenue line. And if you have a bunch of funding, that's okay. And you can play the long game like Dropbox did and the other freemium players that we could mention off the top of our head, Figma, that was one, right? But if you're bootstrapping, you're trying to get to the point where you're quitting your job, while I may have a free version, I personally would kind of want there to be more impetus than just honor system for someone to pay me money. Because my gut is, even of the people who should pay you money, it's going to be 1 in 10, 1 in 50, just some tiny, tiny number. And unless I get a kajillion installs of this thing, like you need hundreds of thousands of installs of this in order to make any type of real money. And that's tough because getting tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of anything is hard if you've built it. So that's my take. I mean, you know, I'm more of the SaaS mindset rather than the old school shit. You're, you're almost talking shareware is what you're talking. And that model is not one that I personally would return to. So thanks for your question. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is from Zach. Hi, Rob. My name is Zach, and I'm a new listener to the Startups for the Rest of Us podcast. I've already listened to a few episodes and uh, bought the SaaS playbook and read it in two or three days, and it was a fantastic read and would recommend it for anyone looking to start uh, a software company. My question is in regards to competition and maybe some use cases uh, that I just haven't heard before. I've, I've tried to search online, but my niche is in the local government space and the competition would be dominated by uh, legacy trade organizations or associations. Curious if there's been a product or a company that has gone up against these uh, behemoth legacy companies who, in my opinion, aren't innovating and um aren't providing a valuable product, but it's well known throughout the industry. So uh, curious if you've had that before, or if you have any suggestions, I would love to hear it. Thanks so much. Okay, so this depends on a couple things. Realistically, I don't quite understand what your business is or exactly how you're competing. But when I think about it, if I'm competing against incumbents, big entrenched incumbents, I usually don't care because I know I can outmaneuver them. But there are some exceptions to that. If there's a network effect like a two-sided marketplace, or where everyone being there means everyone stays there. Like, think about eBay and Craigslist. These sites that so many people have tried to copy, including Amazon, tried to copy eBay. They had their own auctions. Did Amazon try to copy Craigslist too? I mean, there's been all these things that have tried to, to unseat eBay and Craigslist. 
And they couldn't because even though the sites didn't change, it didn't improve, they have tremendous network effects. And so if, if the legacy trade organizations and associations you're talking about have network effects as a bootstrapper, I personally would be very wary of trying to unseat those. The second thing is switching costs and switching frequency, maybe. Because if folks, let's say uh, big construction firms and often governments will sign two, three, four-year contracts for their software. And if you're trying to get people to switch, they literally cannot without eating a bunch of money for years. So A, if there's a lock-in there in terms of duration of contract, but beyond that, switching costs are brutal, right? Imagine if you're like Planify, which is a tiny seed company that builds software for construction firms to run their business on, their entire business system. The switching cost to or from them is huge. You have to train all of your employees, everybody out in the field, everyone in the office, and you have to get everybody up to speed and on one day just flip it over and you just hope it works. And these are not, you know, it's not tech savvy people, right? You're not dealing with you know, the, the people who work at Tiny Seed, right? Or the people who work at MicroConf, where we all know how to use Trello. And so moving to Notion like wasn't that big of a deal. And building something in Airtable, we just kind of figured it out. Like you're dealing with folks who I'll say, like my dad, who worked 42 years in construction. He kind of knows how to use a computer. You know, I mean, that's that's about it, right? He'll he'll call me and say, I can't get, I can't find where Firefox is because like the shortcut from the, you know, the homepage got deleted and he doesn't know where to find it, right? So that's can be the level you're dealing with. And so switch and costs are a big deal because the retraining and getting people up to speed is tough. So I'm not saying don't do it if there are big switching costs, but if there are big switching costs, like I would want to enter a space where new people are coming in all the time, right? Let's say I built Trip, email service provider, competed with MailChimp. Switching costs are not that high, but in mentally people think they are, but there are new people coming in all the time, just getting started. And new people with kind of email lists that want to, you know, move it to an official ESP or whatever. So while there were switching costs, there was also a lot of opportunity each month for new people, you know, who were looking for a solution. If you don't have that and you have high switching costs and you're literally trying to pull them from entrenched competitors, it's going to be tough. I'm not saying don't do it. Those are the two headwinds I'd think about. The third one is brand, right? Do they have a strong brand and does everyone love them? Then there's no reason to switch. Unless people are complaining or there's an actual problem, like, oh, they're so expensive. They don't actually do anything for the money. Oh, yeah, we all hate them, but we're just with them because they're the only option. Well, now I start thinking, okay, how hard is it to switch? And if one person at a time or one company at a time switches to my software, do they get the same value or do I need like a hundred or a thousand to switch at once because there's a network effect, right? Again, coming back to if it was a network effect thing, I probably wouldn't do it or I would seriously consider not doing it. Now, if you weren't talking about trade organizations and associations and city governments, local governments, I guess you said, it, it's a whole different story, right? Because if we're going into MarTech, marketing technology, where the switching costs are low and there are no network effects and there are some big brands in the space but people don't like them. I mean, there is huge opportunity, in my opinion. But that's not the question you asked, so I I answered it uh, with the information given. So thanks for the question, Zach. I hope that was helpful. Finding the perfect software engineer for your team can feel like looking for a needle in a haystack, and the process can quickly become overwhelming. But what if you had a partner who could provide you with over 1,000 on-demand, vetted, senior, results-oriented developers who are passionate about helping you succeed, and all that at competitive rates? Meet Lemon.io. They only offer hand-picked developers with three or more years of experience and strong, proven portfolios. With Lemon.io, you can have an engineer start working on your project within a week instead of months, 
Plus, you won't waste your time on candidates who aren't qualified. Lemon.io gives you easy access to global talent without scouring countless job boards, and it's more affordable than hiring local talent. And if anything goes wrong, Lemon.io offers swift replacements, so it's kind of like hiring with a warranty. If you need to grow your engineering team or delegate some work, give Lemon.io a try. Learn more by visiting lemon.io slash startups and find your perfect developer or tech team in 48 hours or less. As a bonus for our podcast listeners, get a 15% discount on your first four weeks of working with a developer. Stop burning money, hire devs smarter. Visit lemon.io slash startups. Next question is from Bavesh. And I'm answering this one even though it's a written question because it is almost 11 months old. And that sometimes happens with these. So Bavesh asks, what makes a SaaS product a low-touch strategy? If all the competitors are undertaking a high-touch sales strategy, can a low-touch sales strategy be possible? So the answer to the latter question is yes, it can. The answer to the first question of what makes a SaaS product a low-touch strategy, there's a couple things, right? So if you aren't charging very much, it kind of has to be low-touch. But you really have to do the touch strategy to support the way that your customers buy. If they all want demos and they all want high-touch sales and onboarding, then that's what you do to get the most customers. That's just what you do. You adapt to what the customers want. Here's the kicker. If they all want high touch, but they're super cash strapped, let's say they're a school or a library or a nonprofit, and they need the high touch, but they're only willing to pay $30 a month, that's a tough business. I I would say, I don't say bad business, but like I would never start that business because you're going to need a lot of person hours that aren't justified based on the average revenue per account per month or the lifetime value or the, you know, the annual contract value, whatever you want to say, you're just not making enough money to justify it. So usually I look at how do the customers want to buy? And in some spaces, like construction firms buying their, their business system I was just talking about with Planify, they're not going to self-serve. They're always going to go through a really long sales process. I think most lawyers, like if you're serving legal, they want to do, usually there's a, at least a demo or a conversation. If you're selling to developers or marketing technology or to entrepreneurs, there's a split. Usually, like with developers, there's like more low touch, no touch. With entrepreneurs, there's like a subset who are not as technical. But I think of like the startup founders. I shouldn't say entrepreneurs broadly, but more like kind of technical, semi-technical startup founders. The more technical they are, oftentimes they want that lower touch, but it's that's a generalization. And so once you enter a space, it's like getting to know your customer, right? Getting to know your prospects, how they want to buy, and then realizing, can I charge enough to make it worth that level of effort? And to go back to your second question, which is if all the competitors have a high-touch strategy, can a low-touch strategy be possible? The answer is yes, if your customers are willing to buy on the low-touch. And in fact, if you can then charge a lot less and have a great product and make it simpler, because there's a certain subset that don't want high-touch. I'll give you an example. Infusionsoft, which is now known as Keep, I think it's spelled K-E-A-P. They did high touch only and they their marketing automation, by the way. They did high touch only and they were like three or four hundred dollars a month and up. So they were priced high and they did this sales strategy. When I launched Drip, we had a decent subset of their functionality once we got automations and we had, you know, you could say 80% of their marketing automation functionality. Now they have other stuff built in a shopping cart. We weren't going to build affiliate management, blah, blah, blah. But just in terms of email marketing and marketing automation, we had enough of their functionality that a good chunk of their users could use us. And I went with 
a low touch strategy, frankly, a lower no touch. And I think we did have a book a demo and it was only if you were over $100 a month or whatever, we would do a demo. But otherwise you could self-serve and our pricing was way cheaper because the sales model supported it. And so we got a ton of Infusionsoft refugees that didn't like the sales strategy. They didn't want to buy that way, but they were being forced into it. And so there was opportunity. The hard part is figuring out how do people want to buy? If I'm not in the space, how do you figure that out? And that really is the the question. It's by talking to people, by being in forums, by being in the Facebook groups, by being in the Slack groups, hearing people complain, oh my gosh, at the time, Infusionsoft requires a one-year annual commit and a $2,000 onboarding fee, and their support is crap. They don't let you see the product before you buy, and it's a heavy sales process, and dot, 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 dot. So I looked at that and said, our product is a lot easier to use, therefore we don't need all the onboarding and all this other stuff. And I know that we can make money charging, you know, starting at 50 a month and that there will be expansion revenue, which there was, and that frankly, we could have net negative churn if there's enough expansion revenue, which there was. And therefore, I knew that we could undercut them on price and change the sales model and really take a lot of their disgruntled customers away, which is what we did. So thanks for that question, Bavesh. Hope it was helpful. My next question is about doing sales as an introverted founder. Hey Rob, I'm Jorn from the Netherlands. Uh, I've been listening to the show for about six months and I absolutely love the show, so thanks a lot. Um, I'm a developer myself and have a question about introverted versus extroverted founders. So on the show, you mentioned founders doing the sales up to a certain point of the business. And to me, that makes total sense. But as a more introverted person, I've always found sales to be difficult, perhaps more difficult than for more extroverted people. Or yeah, at least that's my assumption. So I'm kind of curious where you see yourself on the extroverted versus introverted scale and what advice you have for founders that are more introverted when it comes to sales. Thanks a lot, Rob. Bye-bye. I like this question. So to answer, I think it was your last one first, where do I fit on the scale? So I am introverted. And there's a reason that I talk to a microphone and a video camera Instead of hanging out with a bunch of people while I do this, I I enjoy thinking and talking one-on-one or alone, frankly, as y'all have heard me do for however many, you know, hundreds of of solo adventures that I've recorded. I'm an introvert. And so I, I definitely get drained when I go to big events. Even though I run them, I get drained. And I get drained when I have to do sales calls because it's just outside of my wheelhouse. It's something I can do. It's not something that gives me life. So here are my thoughts for you. I would read a couple of books that are focused on this topic. That's exactly what I would go for because there there are a lot of introverts and I don't know what the numbers are, but is it 50% of the world? I mean, it's certainly some percentage that experience this kind of stuff. And so there is information out there on it. So one audiobook that I actually have in our Audible library that I believe Sherry bought, uh, I've not listened to, but it's called Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. And I think as a general book, just to learn more about how you can make introversion a superpower, I think that would be interesting. And the other book that I have not read, but I have had recommended to me, and it's by Matthew Pollard, it's called The Introvert's Edge, How the Quiet and Shy Can Outsell Anyone. And that's $11 on paperback on Amazon. And it looks like there's an audio version or whatever. I mean, frankly, go to Amazon and type in sales as an introvert or go to Google and type in sales as an introvert book and just pick one with high reviews. And I think the one that I've heard recommended the most is The Introvert's Edge. But someone is going to have 
a book's worth of info about this and a thought process and a framework and a here's how you take sales and turn it on its head. If you're introverted, that's actually an advantage. So here's one thing I do because I'm introverted and so I'm a little like anxious about sales. So I would get on a sales call when I was doing it for Drip and I would say, hey, I'm Rob, I'm the founder. I'm really not a salesperson, but I know that you wanted a demo and I'm here to show you what we can do and try to figure out if we're a fit for your use case. You know, if we can help you and maybe save you some money, because I know you're on Infusionsoft, talk to me about your setup today, right? And I would kind of get them walking into it. And then I would be evaluating in my head, are they actually a fit? I only want to sign them up if they're a fit. I didn't want, I didn't want bad customers, you know, that are going to churn or going to be a bad use of our time. And so I would just be pretty honest with them and be a human upfront about this is who I am and this is the goal of the call rather than trying to talk them into it or trying to act like someone that I wasn't, right? I didn't try to channel some fake extrovert in order to do sales. But that's just my experience. I hope you can find more help in one of the books that I called out. And my last question of the day is from Jake. Jake asks, thank you for the amazing content and insights you share on the podcast and the blog. My question, what if your idea is time sensitive and you don't believe you have the time to do the stair-step approach to learn? I'm working on a site to test the idea and see if it has traction. Thanks, Jake. I would probably just go validate it then. You know what I mean? Like the the stair-step method is I don't have any ideas and I'm going to go try to do it in a a repeatable, predictable fashion that I have a decent confidence that I'm going to build it up over time and I'm going to have some moderate successes over time that build and build and build. If you have an idea that you really want to build, you're just very passionate about, then go validate that, right? You can do the the 5 p.m. idea validation framework to kind of do a first pass at it and then do some type of validation. I've talked about this. There's the high-touch validation where you're actually having conversations, whether via email or Zoom or Looms. And then there's like the low-touch validation where you build a landing page and you can send traffic to it either just by talking about it to your audience or running ads or SEO or whatever. You know, there's a bunch of different ways to do that. So there's kind of two, there's more validation modes than that, but those are the two that I think about. I would certainly not go build this because I didn't have time to stair-step, but to skip to validation on something that you think there's a real need for and you believe that you're excited to build it, I mean, there's no rules in this, right? It's, it's just recommendations. It's frameworks. It's best practices to try to help get you to success faster and more often and more predictably. But none of this is set in stone. It's all just the insane ramblings of some guy who has been starting companies for 20 years, has a few million dollar companies under his belt, and has been talking on a microphone for 13 years. Thanks so much for joining me today and for sending in your questions. If you have a question for the pod, go to startupsfortherestofus.com, click ask a question at the top of the top nav, and audio and video questions will go to the top of the stack. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 691. 